You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, amen and good morning. Let me invite you to turn with me in our text for this morning, which is Psalm 119, verses 97 through 104. Psalm 119, 97 through 104. I hope that you are enjoying, as I am, the series uh, through uh, the topic, How and Why We Love the Bible. It has been helpful to me, and it's been a reminder of why it's a good idea for us to take this break in the summer, and we usually take a break from our verse-by-verse preaching through books of the Bible in the winter as well. And it's good, I think, for everybody. It's good for the preacher. It's good for the congregation to set our minds on something else. It provides us a little bit of a rest. We've been wrestling through some really heavy things through the book of Revelation, and we will be back there soon to continue on through the end of the year in that book. But for now, we're gleaning a lot of help and wisdom from this great series, How and Why We Love the Bible. You know, in our study of the book of Revelation, we have encountered great scenes of God's people persevering. We have seen over and over again almost every Sunday these scenes of God's people fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil. One of the things that I have noticed as we've been working through the book of Revelation and even in the last few weeks is I think that noticing in my own heart and the hearts of others, if we're not careful... It's possible that Christians may fall for the lie that we are first fighters when we are actually first lovers. Listen to what the great church father, St. Augustine, said. He said, to fall in love with God is the greatest romance, to seek him the greatest adventure, to find him the greatest human achievement. What we want to do in this series and really in all of our treatment of the Word of God, we preach it when we hear it, when we study at home, we discuss it in community groups, is that we want to love and know God's Word. And we want that to be true this summer. I hope that as we come out of July, that will be something we can look back on and say, we love and know and appreciate God's Word more than we did in June. And even as we go back to Revelation and continue through the rest of the year, I hope that will be something that we say as well, because we love God's word in our church. It is our lifeblood. It's our hope. It's our truth. It is what God is using to lead us through life and to prepare us for the world to come and to give us perseverance and comfort in all of the difficulties that we face here. This morning, what we want to consider is how we can love God by loving his word. And so I've titled this message, For the Love of God's Word, so that we can keep clear in our minds the importance of love. When we are in the world that is full of conflict and difficulty and challenge and sin and temptation and trouble and losses and crosses and all the rest, let's not lose sight of the fact that we as Christians are lovers first and we are fighters second. And we can do that by looking to God's word and asking God to help us love his word so that ultimately our ultimate goal would be reached, that we would love God more. That's what we want to do this morning as we notice three key truths from this text, Psalm 119, verses 97 through 104. 
Psalm 19, I think, is one of the, the greatest chapters or psalms in the Bible. It's the longest chapter in the Bible at 176 verses. And if you just open your Bible there and, and kind of page through Psalm 119, you'll notice the way that it's set up in, a, in an intentional, systematic, poetic kind of way. In fact, what the author of Psalm 119 is doing, though we're not exactly sure who it is, is that he was writing a kind of poem or exaltation of the supremacy and sufficiency and beauty and power of the Word of God. So as you look through Psalm 119, you'll notice probably in your version of the Bible these different Hebrew letters. In fact, Psalm 119 walks through the Hebrew alphabet one letter at a time. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, all the way through the Hebrew alphabet. And under each letter of the Hebrew alphabet are eight verses, each, little sections of eight verses. Those stanzas each are intended to put on display how marvelous is the Word of God. In fact, it has been suggested by some theologians that because certain numbers seem to carry certain meaning in the Bible, for instance, the number seven seems to be a number that symbolizes something like completeness or perfection, that they suggest it could be that the psalmist wrote eight verses in each stanza of Psalm 119 to exalt the word of God as a way to symbolize that the word of God is not merely complete. It's not merely perfect. It's super complete. It's super perfect. It is seven and then one. And so as we look at this Psalm 119, verses 97 through 104, our goal is to better understand why the Bible is so beautiful and perfect and how we can love it more and serve God through it every day that we live. I want to show you the first truth, which is grace produces love for God's word. But first, I think it would be helpful to us if I just read through these verses and we can get them in our minds and hearts and then walk back through them bit by bit, gleaning the truth from them. Starting in verse 97, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than those who are old because I have complied with your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way so that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, Sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. We begin here at this verse 97 with just one simple phrase, one sentence. How I love your law. This incredible uh, exclamation of the psalmist declaring his love for God's law. We understand that to be all of scripture now. God's word is an incredible truth. It's an incredible thing to proclaim. But what I think we need to do if we're going to rightly understand even that simple sentence is to rewind just a little bit to the work that God must do in our hearts if we are ever to love God's word this way. For the grace of God in Christ to do its work in us is the key to any kind of loving God's law like this. 
In fact, to understand how and why we love the Bible and this passage, I think we have to do just that. And we have to do that over and over again. We have to rewind and go back to the work of God in our hearts, which has even birthed this love. Or else we won't understand where it comes from. And if we don't understand where it comes from, we can't even understand what it is. So let's do that by looking at these words in the exclamatory statement of the psalmist, how I love your law. We can do that simply the way we want to handle all of the word of God is taking it piece by piece and drawing from it the marrow of truth within each word. Listen to what he says, how I love your law. We notice first that key word in the phrase, which is love. He says, I love your law. Of course, we contrast that to other things that he could say, which would be fine to say. I like your law. I appreciate your law. I value your word. I want your truth. Those are all wonderful things to say, but it's not what he says here. He says something far more fundamental, far more life-changing, heart-gripping. I don't just like it. I don't just value and appreciate it. I don't just want it. He says, I love it. He's using here the Hebrew word, which is fundamental for the word love. It encapsulates all that love is in your heart and soul down to your very guts. It captivates all of you. And he is captivated when he says, I love your law. We also notice that this key word that's used throughout, in particular Psalm 119 and other parts of the Bible to describe the word of God is important, and it is the word law. It doesn't just mean his commands. It doesn't just mean that I love the things you tell me to do. It doesn't just mean I love the Ten Commandments or I love all of the to-dos you give me, but I love your word. I love your truth. I love the words that you have spoken to me which encapsulate everything that God says that fits together in his law and in his gospel, both his declaration of who he is, his character, his greatness in the law, as well as the word of the gospel, which comes to us and comforts our hearts when we realize we cannot live up to that law. We cannot live up to his standard. We cannot really be like him because of our sin. And all of that is brought together in this term for the psalmist, law. I love your law. But that's not all, because there is something else here. Notice that this phrase is not just, I love your law. It actually ends in an exclamation point, and it begins with the word, how. This is the key to the exclamation. This is what takes that phrase from just being a propositional truth about how he feels to something far deeper and far more important with more energy and more praise and more exaltation that gets at the real meaning of what he's saying, he says, how, how I love your law. Notice it doesn't end in a question mark. It's not a question. How do I love your law? How is your law to be loved? It's an exclamation point how I love your law. It is to say that there is, there's no limit to it. There's no way to measure my love for your law. It is everything to me. Well, here's the key question. How could you ever say something like that? If you really understand, and I really understand what the word of God tells us about who we are, the kinds of creatures that we are, being not only creatures, but fallen creatures, 
How could we ever come as sinful, fallen human beings who are born in sin and at enmity and war with God, how could we ever say something even remotely like this? How I love your law. It is only because something precedes that statement. There has to be the miraculous work of God's grace which makes our love possible. In fact, the Bible says it on almost every page and almost every word. Certainly the gospel message is that to love God must begin with the grace of God. God is the first one to move. He's the first one to love. He's the first one to bring change. Therefore, we want to know the grace of God. We want to remember where this love comes from and to remember that grace produces love for God's word. I remember in seminary, I took a few Greek classes which were required, and I did sort of enjoy them, but they were really difficult for me. I always struggled with languages, in particular Greek. It's still Greek to me. But I had this one professor, Dr. Harris, Dr. Greg Harris, one of my favorite professors in all of seminary. And as I look back on that time, it's clear to me why he was my favorite. Now, those who are, hold to the, a really, really high standard of, of seminary and theological education may not agree with why I love Dr. Harris, but it's true. I remember as we were going through that first semester of Greek, we got to the midterm exam, and we were told that we needed to be ready because this is a big exam. There's only two in the semester, and here we came to the midterm exam, and we sat down at, at our desks, and then Dr. Harris came to the front, and he said, okay, now everyone's ready for the exam. I want you to take everything off of your desk except for a piece of paper. And on that piece of paper, I want you to write what grade you think you deserve on the midterm. And that's the grade that we were given. I had not, in my short Christian life, experienced grace much like that in the world. I was so grateful for that because I knew that if you left it up to me, I was going to really struggle. Now, I was honest. I was honest with what grade I thought that I would get, but there was no assurance that I was going to get that grade. But then we came to the final. As we came to the final exam and we were preparing for it, he told us in advance, now here's the way the final works. You can take a piece of paper on either side as small as you want. You can write anything that you want, any hint, any clue, any of the paradigms, any of the things that have to do with this exam, you can write there. You can laminate it so it stays nice and clean, but you have to show it to me before the exam and I'll check you off for having done it. And then you can use that on the exam. And so I worked real hard, and I had that thing all filled out. I worked so hard. I wanted to get a good grade in this final exam. But even then, having written all of that there, I knew that there were worlds of information that I had not written down on my piece of paper. And so we get to the final exam. We sit at our desks, and he says, okay, now take everything off your desk, including that piece of paper. Get out another piece of paper, and I want you to write down what you think you deserve in the class and three reasons why. I did not think I could know any more grace than the midterm grace, but the final grace was even bigger. And it birthed in my heart a love for Greg Harris, almost like no other. Oh, how I love Greg Harris. Why? It was because of his grace. That's what caused me to love him. That's what worked in my heart. This affection for my professor was the grace that he had shown me. And that's a simple, earthly kind of example, but it's true. This is why we love God's word. 
We need this grace to work in us or else we won't love God's word. This is making a significant point here about our fallen condition and God's entrancing grace. We know from God's word that God created humans to love him and to love his words. But then everything went wrong in the garden. The corrupting influence of sin darkened the hearts of all people, even all of the people in this room right now. It locked us into slavery in sin and a hatred of God. Listen to what the Heidelberg Catechism says in two key questions, number seven and number eight. The first question, from where then did man's depraved nature, sinful nature, come from? The answer, from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise, for there our nature, hear it, became so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. And then question eight, but are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? If you stop there and you're honest with your natural fallen heart and you listen for the natural answer that comes out of your uninformed heart, it does mine too, go out onto the sidewalk and, and ask this question and wait for the answer, you'll not give the, get the answer that was given in the catechism. You'll get the answer, which is, are we so corrupt that we're totally unable to do any good? No, of course not. We can do all kinds of good. We're not that bad, but rather this is the truth here. Zacharias Ursinus, the author of the Heidelberg Catechism, put it this way, yes, unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Ursinus leads us in that answer right to the treasure and the end of the answer of what we need in order to love God. We need God's heart-changing grace. This is an alien work. This is an outside job. It's not an inside job that we do on ourselves. He must come into us and change our hearts. He must, as the catechism says, regenerate us. Now, this is a key word of our faith. Anytime you hear a key word, write it down, get used to it, start using it in your own heart, counsel yourself, remind yourself of the truth. Here's one. It sounds like a fancy theology seminary word, but it's very important regeneration. It's basically two little parts, re, which means again, and generate, which means create. Regeneration is what God does in the heart of a sinner like me to make me alive again. I cannot love God. I cannot know God. I cannot praise God. I cannot be with God. Not unless, not unless he makes me again. See, knowing some theological words help us immensely. This is one because it paints for us the clear picture. When our hearts are bound in sin and we are inclined toward all evil, not loving, not wanting to love God, he works in love to create us again. A new heart of love for him and for his words. Do you want to hear an incredible truth about God's powerful and gracious word? When we were lost in sin, despising God's word, he changed our hearts by announcing to us 
his words, which are established in the word that is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And by that word being announced to us into our hearts with his saving faith given as a gift, he grants us faith so that we can hear and that gospel word awakens us to him and not only to him, but to a love for his word. Listen to what James says in James 1, 17 and 18. He talks about every good thing, every good gift comes from God. And in particular, he highlights one that is at the, at the top of the list. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. He, by his word, preached to us the good news that awakened or regenerated, recreated our hearts again so that we could be the kind of people who say, how I love your law, how I love your word. So the first use or application of this text this morning for us is simply this. We must, if we're going to be these kinds of Christians, embrace and appreciate God's gracious word work in your heart. Let me encourage you. Take some time. Take some time this evening, this week, maybe even in community group. Take some time to think and pray and thank God for his word work. You see, because that's what he's done to change you. If you're sitting here as a Christian today, you have been changed because his word worked in you. He did gospel word work, and it changed your heart. And it made your heart one that that went from not wanting to hear or love God's word, but being able to say, how I love your law. But here's the second truth. Love is wonderful. It is fantastic, but... It's only fantastic if it goes to its intended destination. And here's the next stop on the trip. Love motivates meditation on God's word. We see this clearly throughout the Psalms in particular in Psalm 119. As the psalmist does not simply declare that he loves God's law, but in fact that love drives him to meditate on that word. It works in him a kind of interaction with the word of God that doesn't stay on the surface of just surfacey love and appreciation and admiration, but it actually drives Christians deep down into the word by meditation. The psalmist's words here show us the result of divinely gifted love for God's law, and that is meditation. Notice at the end of verse 97, we sort of split that in half. The end of verse 97 says, it, your law, is my meditation all the day. Your law, because I love it, is my meditation all the day. He goes on in verse 98, your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all of my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation." In this little bit of scripture, you hear the theme over and over again. It is instructive to us that it's key for us to love and know God's word by meditating upon it. It is my meditation all the day. 
We see even here in these few words, both the method and the measure. Let's take note of those. If you're taking notes, write this down. The method of Bible work is meditation. That basically means, that's a pretty common word for us, but it basically means to think hard and long on truth. That's what meditation is. It's a good litmus for us, a good test for us to take, to ask ourselves, how long and how hard am I accustomed to dealing with or reading or meditating on God's word? It is my meditation, he says. But he goes on and he gives the measure, listen to this, all the day. You see, the kind of love that has been gifted to us by grace, the love which causes us to declare how I love your law, motivates. That love motivates an extreme, entranced measure of meditation. You see, it doesn't, it doesn't equate to what is often true in my life, a kind of dabbling in the Word of God, I kind of dabble in a, in a hobby horse kind of way, dabble in the word of God. That's not the measure the psalmist is declaring to us or offering to us. It's far greater than that, is that your word is my meditation all the day. It is, as he says later, ever mine. Your words, your truth, your law, they are ever mine. That means that all the time, the psalmist is is showing us a picture of life in which all the time, the word of God is working in our hearts and minds. Now, here's the reality for creatures like us. As much as we would like it to be true, multitasking is simply an illusion. There is no such thing as multitasking for anyone except the Lord. We are single-minded. We are creatures. We're only able to do really one thing at a time. We cannot truly, not truly, do two things at once. But meditation is different. It's a different kind of thing because it's not a concrete thing we do, like swimming or washing the dishes. Obviously, we cannot swim and clean the dishes at the same time. They're two concrete things. That would be really weird. But we can do meditation in the midst of any of those concrete things that we do in our day. Meditation is a practice which can be embedded in all other kinds of activities. It's something that we can do while we're swimming. It's something that we can do while we're cleaning the dishes. It's something that we are intended to do all day long. And the only way that that can happen is for us to get into a habit in, of which meditation is not just this concrete thing we sit down and do, though it can be that. But there's another angle, there's another dimension in which it happens all the time. Everything in life is then a, a, a trigger to bring to our hearts and minds the Word of God, that we would be thinking about God's Word through all of the things that we do changing of the diapers, filling out the reports typing the emails, driving the car. Everything is a means of meditation. Now, it's helpful to us to see that the word used in Hebrew for meditation is a word that's kind of in the family of talking, the word talk, or to negotiate, 
or even similar to the word complain. These are things that you and I can, well, fairly easily do while we're swimming or washing the dishes. We could swim and talk. We could run and talk. We could wash the dishes and talk. And in a similar way, we can do meditation. Because meditation is this talking. It's an internal kind of discussion and musing on the truth. It is an internal discussion with God and with ourselves about the truth, no matter what we're doing. Sometimes meditation is described, even in the words of Scripture and the kind of words that are used for meditation, to describe the sound of groaning or growling or murmuring. I wonder if maybe that's why in some traditions or practices like yoga, where there's a sort of kind of thing like meditation going on, there's that sound Um, You see, that sound carries with it that idea of what's happening in our hearts. It's a continual reverberation of the word of God, always humming in the background. It's always there. It's not us. It's not our minds. It's not our voice in Christian meditation going, um, but it is God's voice. God's voice ever groaning, ever murmuring, ever reverberating, swimming, cleaning the dishes, whatever it is God has called us to do. Now in short, catch this, this meditation is continual. It is the inward engagement with the word of God to discover its depth. That's really what this is about. That that swimming picture is also helpful to us because it's not just swimming on the surface, it's diving deep down in little descents into the word of God, always thinking, always swimming down to the bottom. Now, this has a lot to do with how we listen to sermons as well. Hearing preaching is a part of our Bible meditation. It is the kind of planting of seeds that then we can meditate on and and they will grow over time from Sunday to Sunday or whenever the next sermon comes up. So what I think would be helpful to us in this series today is just to think about what is in a sermon for two reasons. One, if you know what's in a sermon, it will make you a better sermon listener It'll make you a better sermon meditator. But also, by knowing this, it will just have broad sweeping benefits for your ongoing meditation on the Word of God. I want to show you four ingredients that all good sermons have in them, and you can find them, and I want to suggest that you should be trying to find them, even as you're hearing the Word of God preached. And here they are. Number one is explanation. In our preaching... And in our personal meditation on the Word of God, there is a question with each of these ingredients, and the first, which goes along with explanation, is simply the question, what truth does the text clearly teach me? If you notice, when we're preaching on Sundays or at other times, that is one of the first things that we're trying to do. We're trying to explain in simple ways, what the Word of God says. What is the clear and straightforward truth that is coming off of the page? You'll notice that there's a second ingredient, and that's the ingredient of illustration. Explanation, illustration. 
With illustration goes along the question, what picture makes this text or truth memorable? So when you hear good preaching here or anywhere else, you'll notice that there are illustrations, pictures, analogies that we can hang our hearts on to get a hold of that truth, make it memorable, help us to remember it. You will hopefully leave here today thinking at some point about meditating while you swim or meditating while you clean the dishes. And hopefully that truth will come home to you even more because of that illustration. Number three, explanation, illustration, argumentation. And here's the question that coincides with this. What questions or objections arise in my heart because of this truth or text? The argumentation of the sermon is where there are objections answered, where the preacher or as we are preaching to ourselves and thinking about our own hearts, we're thinking, what kind of objections would people raise about this truth from the word of God? What kind of question would come up or what conflict or what complaint could there be? And let's see if we can answer that also from the word of God. It's the argumentation of the scripture. So even as you're meditating personally in your life, be thinking about these three, and then also the fourth, which is very important, and that is application. How can I use this text in my life? I want to show you on the screen two pictures that go along with what we're discussing with these four ingredients so that you could see them and get an idea. Now, uh, earlier, hopefully, you got a sermon notebook for taking notes if you don't already do this. If you do and you already have your own way of doing it or you like to do it on an iPad or your phone, that's fine. You could take the notebook and put it right back up on the shelf and somebody else who likes to write it down may take that. We're gonna keep these notebooks in the resource area. You don't have to pay for them. When you fill one up, you could get another one, okay? So hopefully you have one of these and it's just simply an empty notebook that you could bring with, uh, to church with you each Sunday. And then as you... Hear sermon sermon or in ABF, when you hear ABF lessons taught, you have uh, somewhere that you can place these and you could take it to community group and bring up different thoughts that you've had and to keep track of the word of God, keep track of the truth that God is giving to you. I might even encourage you to think about those four ingredients and write them down in your sermon notes ahead of time before the sermon begins. Title, who's preaching, what's the date, what's the text. And then you might find it helpful to write, as I do, explanation, illustration, argumentation, application. And then you look for all of those things in the sermon. You thought, oh, 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 he's explaining. He's explaining that text. What is he saying about that text? Oh, 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 that's a good picture. I've never thought about that. Let me write that picture down. Illustration. Oh, that is something that came out of my heart when I heard that text. I didn't think that was right, but now I hear the biblical answer argumentation. Application. What is the use? Sometimes we call it that on Sunday mornings. What is the use of this text? How should I apply it to my life? Jot that down. And point by point by point, you will find something like those four ingredients all throughout the sermon. Now, that kind of secret... I'm not a magician, so I have no problem telling my secrets, should help you because now you know what's in the sermon and now you can hopefully even more easily follow along. So here, as we look at this meditation point about love motivates our meditation on God's word, here's how you could use this in your life. We should purposefully then think about God's word 
as we do all of those things that God calls us to do. I might even recommend a book to you that could help you. It's really short and easy to read. Help you think more about how you could be this type of meditator throughout daily life. It's a book called The Practice of the Presence of God by someone named Brother Lawrence. And listen to what he says in one little snippet from the book. We must know before we can love. In order to know God, we must often think of him. And when we come to love him, we shall then also think of him often. For our heart will be with our treasure. That's a pretty deep quote. He's simply saying that when God becomes the treasure of your heart, you cannot help but meditate on him. He's your treasure. He's the lifeblood. He's the blood circulating through your spiritual heart. And you cannot help but keep pumping that blood through every organ in your body. Because he is your treasure. So that was the second point this morning, that love motivates meditation on God's word. Therefore, if you're the kind of person, like the person I want to be, who says, how I love your law, you will know that that's true when you find yourself meditating on that law. And if you find that you're never meditating on that law, then you should go back with me to that exclamation and question it for your own heart. But do I really, do I really love God's law? And if I don't love God's law, which is born in me by grace, do I really know and love God at all? Those are deep, pointy questions. Those questions can sting, but they're important. And therefore, we want to ask them, and we want to think carefully about our meditation on the Word of God. And then finally, not only do I look a little bit like Captain Obvious, if you've seen him on TV, but I sound like him when I say this. Unless our love and meditation reaches life, it's incomplete. In a way, we might say, as wonderful as love and meditation is, they are not enough. It is not enough to love God's word. It's not enough to simply meditate on God's word unless the love and the meditation is bringing it out of your heart into life. Think of another picture. If you were to sit and just study something simple like a bicycle, and you took note in a journal of all the different parts and how they work together, and you looked at all the, the sort of grammar or terms of that bike, and then you sorted them out, and you made sense of how they were interconnected, and you, you were then looking at, at all of the different pieces and what they did, it would really amount to nothing if you didn't reach that third stage, which is then to put something into practice, to make that bike better or to reproduce that bike so that you could give it away and bless other people. It's the same thing with the word of God. It's wonderful to know the words. It's wonderful to memorize scripture. It's wonderful to know what it says. It's wonderful to sort out the words and have a real good grasp of how they work together. But if those words are not coming out of your life, and benefiting the people around you and glorifying the God who graced you with faith and love for his word, it makes very little difference. Therefore, we want to be the kind of people who not only know that God's grace produces love for his word, that not only know that that grace-produced love leads to meditation on his word, but number three, that that loving meditation changes 
our lives. It changes who we are, what we think, what we do, what we say, what we feel, what we want. It changes everything about us. That's the beauty of meditating on God's word because that's what we know we need. Here we come to the end of the last few verses of this text in verse 100. Notice what he says. I understand more than those who are old because I have complied with your precepts. The meditation on scripture born out of love for God results in this text in an obedience and an exercise of the word of God. Notice as we continue reading these verses, the verbs, so get kind of grammatical here, notice the verbs and the nouns. Notice the way the psalmist is making real clear statements. He's not just sitting down willy-nilly writing something out, a sweet poem. He's being very specific under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to use particular words to make certain points. Hear them. Notice the verbs that he uses in verse 100 through 104. Complied. I've complied with your precepts. Literally, it means that I have observed them. I have followed them. It's even a word that, that, that translates over into, into farming or agriculture when something grows green. When it complies, it grows into health. That's what he's saying. He then goes on and says in verse 101, I have restrained my feet from every evil way. I have protected, restrained, held back because of my meditation on your word. It's changed my life. I don't run into evil ways. It changes What I'm watching, it changes what I'm doing. It changes my social media. It's restraining me. There's all these things I wish I could say on Twitter. But because of the word of God, it's holding me back. He goes on even and says in verse 101, so that I may keep your word. This too is a word. It's similar to another word for dregs. Have you heard that before? The dregs of a cup are the very last drops. I have kept to the very last drops this concern for your word to hold them and to mature in them. And then he goes on in verse 102 and he says sort of from the negative, I have not turned aside from your judgments. In other words, literally apostatize. I have not abandoned your judgments, but rather from the positive, I have stayed with you. I have stayed with your word because I love it and because it is my meditation all the day. You hear those verbs coming out as you're reading God's word and meditating on it. Get those verbs, but also get the nouns. Notice the synonyms that he uses for the law. He doesn't just keep saying law, 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 but he uses different words. He's painting a picture, precepts, word, judgments. He's wanting to put on display the the fuller color and palette of what the word of God is all about. You heard a little bit of this earlier in the public reading of scripture text from Psalm 19, which is actually pretty convenient. Two big passages of scripture about the word of God, Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. I think that's probably intentional for us so we can keep it in our little brains. But Psalm 19, toward the end, he talks about the word of God. He's put on display at the beginning of the psalm, the beauty of God's glory and creation, and then he gets into his word. And notice what he does. Here he uses synonyms for the word of God and sort of different terms to talk about what the word of God does. Hear this again quickly as we consider what the psalmist is trying to show us about changed lives. Psalm 19, starting in verse 7, it says, The law, there's one of those synonyms, 
The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts, another synonym, of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much pure gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, your servant is warned by them. In keeping them, there is great reward. He goes on talking about our great need. Even here, our great need for God's word. Who can discern his errors? The answer is no one. Acquit me of hidden faults. I'm so sinful that there's ways that I don't even know that I'm sinning. How much more do I need God's word? Also, keep your servant back from presumptuous sins. The big ones I know about are a danger to me. Let them not rule over me. He's expressing his real need for for a better ruler. Then I will be innocent and I will be blameless of great wrongdoing. And notice in verse 14, the last of Psalm 19, the way that meditation and love for God's word changed him. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's the same kind of thing that's happening in our text this morning. These nouns and verbs putting on display the sufficiency and beauty of the word of God so that we would long for it and meditate on it even more. But you see the reason why. It's because it gives understanding. He says it twice in these last few verses we've been considering. Verse 100, I understand more than those who are old. And then 104, from your precepts, I get understanding. As we come to a close this morning, though, I want to show you one more important hint or detail, and it's one that's buried right there in verse 102. It's easy to pass over. What is the ultimate key to all of this love for God's word and meditation on it? It is knowing, for you yourself have taught me. It's so easy. It's so easy for me to take the word of God and view it as a collection of words on a page in a book, and that's great, but it's light years away from God, rather than seeing that it is actually the very words of God, and it is he himself who is teaching me. That's at the heart of our meditation. Therefore, our final application of this text is that we want to make our aim to love the Lord, By loving his word. Do you love his word? Can you say with the psalmist, how I love your law. If we were to look at your life, God forbid that any of us get put into such an embarrassing situation. Certainly I'm at the top of the list where you would review my day in and day out diary of life. Would you see someone that loves God's law? I hope so. Sometimes I know you wouldn't. That's why we need that change. We need to think about our love for God's word. How do we show our love for a spouse or a friend or a child? By delighting, delighting in their excellencies. It's the same with God. We want to delight in him. Of course, that begins by coming to Christ by faith alone. 
And so if that's you, that you need to become a Christian, we want to share the gospel with you more and more and more, that you would surrender your heart and mind and all that you are to him, and that his grace would work in you what he's working in us, and that is a love for his word, a love for him that is growing and magnifying his goodness to us. But it begins by coming to Christ. So if you are not a Christian on the live stream or here with us in person today, it is my sincere prayer that today would be the day of your regeneration. That God would make you new again the way he's made me new again. And he would strengthen you the way that I need to be strengthened. So that we can love God with all of our hearts and all of our minds. And that our meditation would be delightful to him in every way. Let's pray. Our Father, we do give you thanks this morning for your word. Your word is life. Your word is truth. And we want to be able to say more and more with our hearts how we love your law. Oh God, please help us to know and love your word. We ask you to work in our hearts in such a way that meditation on your word is characteristic of us as people. That if someone were to look at the day in and day out lives that we live, they would see people who love your word. And because we love your word, we love you all the more. And so we pray this morning that as we sing, that you would supernaturally work in our hearts by the words that we have heard from your scriptures and even the words that we're going to sing that are drawn from your scriptures, they would minister to us, they would help us and change us, and that you would comfort us with your good news and make us wholeheartedly and willing to serve you from this day and forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.